Objective Schmidt is coming soon for BFP for ASO. Objective Schmidt is coming soon. That's news you can't be ignoring. It comes with two new hassle maps of Alsenac and Kalmer Schmidt and 18 new scenarios of one which is a campaign. There won't be a big magazine, just a booklet with some pages of HSRs and CG stuff and the historical background. And what price tag will always bring? 100 clans I'll gladly pay. Which really state are you thinking? The FP we are imploring. And all the souls on the chassis on Reilly's Day, on Reilly's Day. I hope it's what Santa will bring on Christmas Day in the morning. Then let us all rejoice again when comes the day, when comes the day. More news from the three wise men who slay us with the new products. Objective Schmidt is coming soon by BFP for ASL. Objective Schmidt is coming soon. This news you can't be ignoring. Hi, is this Dr. Kenneth H. Katz uh, at Forefront Dermatology? Uh, no, no. Is, is no, this? No, must is, have the wrong number. Is this Dr. Ken Katz, pediatrician in Centennial, Colorado? I think you got the wrong number again. Oh, man. Oh, is this is your refrigerator running? <laughs> I'm looking up Kenneth Katz, and I'm coming up. <laughs> I'm coming up with all of these. Uh, is this Ken Katz from? Uh, Sunrise Pediatrics? How come they're all doctors? They're all doctors. You know, I'm the loser of the crowd. Wow. Who Then who the devil are you and why are we calling you? Because none of the really high-end ones want to talk to you. Yeah, that's true. That's probably very true. probably true. Yeah, just try getting a doctor to answer the phone. Yeah. So anyway, this is Ken Katz. Ken Katz. quite excited this evening, folks. Very happy to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've been listening to this uh, podcast for a long time, so oh. it's, it's fun to be the, uh, the the star of the show for once. Yeah, uh, we're sorry for all that pain we inflicted yeah. upon you for, for all those years. This this episode will make it up. Well, you can because this will be my moment of glory. Should be. I mean, this thing. This obviously we're talking about the Forgotten War, Korea, 1950 to 1953. And I looked back through our email and. I think you emailed us or we emailed you and then you responded to us uh, back in 2010. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. Because yeah. if I, I don't remember the exact year, but sometime around then is actually when we submitted it to MMP. And, um, you know, it, it, it has to, first of all, it, it essentially waited for quite a few years. And then it takes a while to go through the, uh, the MMP um, production and, and testing pipeline. It's it, 
putting out a module is is vastly more time consuming than you can imagine. It, yeah. it really is. We got started on this project in 1999. Oh my gosh. So that's 18 years. And yeah. I don't think that that's a particularly unusual length. I mean, I, I think that the guys who did Hakapali or Army of Oblivion probably took about as much time as we did. Yeah, because we talked to them way early in the process. So, um, yeah, I probably did contact you way back then. And now the, the fruits of your labor are about to be realized, and you can then retire and maybe you can get higher up in the Google search. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to make a ton of money off of this. In fact, yeah. I've invented a new branch of economics called ASL, ASL economics, and this is how ASL economics works. Whatever you think that you're going to get paid in royalties, you've probably spent twice as much time, twice as much, excuse me, twice as much money on research materials alone. I mean, I've got books groaning under, uh, shelves groaning under the books that I've bought for this project. So you've probably spent twice as much, not to mention that, you know, your time is worth exactly zero. But yeah. uh, no, it's it's a tremendous way to make money, and I think that that if anyone wants to get rich quickly, they should definitely develop stuff for uh, ASL. Yeah, great. So when you well, who else? Um, do, we, do we want to credit more people along oh, with yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm just one of the guys who worked on it. I mean, there's a there's a long story of of how we got started in this. Um, first of all, it actually goes back in a way before I even got involved. Um, Back in the in the mid 1990s, uh, Mark Newcomb and, and Mike Reed, who were the proprietors of uh, Kinetic Energy, which was one of the uh -huh. early third party manufacturers, a very good one too. Yep, I have most all of their stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they created a series of, 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 if I recall, two ASL modules. One was for the initial invasion in 1950, and and the second one added the Chinese and the other UN forces. And um, you know, this was a this was a typical kinetic energy effort, which is that it was super highly detailed and, um, and, 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 and very, very thorough. And they, they, I, the story that I've heard is that they submitted to MMP and MMP just said, you know, this is not how we do ASL, which is, is, and I don't know whether that's true, but that's the story that I've heard. But anyway, that, that never got anywhere. Although there, there is, I have seen a bit of a prototype set. Um, anyway, one of the principals there, Mike Reed, moved out to Kansas in the mid-90s when I moved out to Kansas and we met. And and around 1999, we started working on this project again. Um, we were both working in downtown Kansas City at the time, so we would get together over lunch and work on it. And um, really, we started, although Mike had worked um, on the kinetic energy one, this was really a brand new, we're, ours is not a derivative or built on the kinetic energy. It's really a clean sheet of paper design. Um, and it was very much intended to to be submitted to MMP, so we tried to do it in ways that we thought that MMP would like. Um, shortly thereafter, we added Paul Works to the group. Uh, Paul's a you know is a is a well known in, in particularly in Midwest tournament circles. He's a he's a real expert on ASL rules. And then um, and then we we with with us three we started really at, I think it was on the ASL mailing list probably at that time we we solicited for volunteers, and I put together a a website on Yahoo Groups which was really the you know how we had how we coordinated and communicated amongst this virtual team, and a lot of people have helped out over the years. Um, for example, uh, Tom Rapetti. Um, was uh, the 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 guy who turned some concepts of boards into into real boards? 
Uh, Rick McCowns, our resident China expert. Uh, Kevin Keneally knows a lot about Korea. Um, and, and a whole bunch of other people. I, I feel bad because if I don't mention everybody, then people are going to get left off. But a lot of people contributed one way or another. There were two people, though, in particular who stuck out who, who have become um, members of the core team. So there are really five of us who sort of share credit for um, um, designing it. The, the, the fourth one was uh, Andy Hershey, who's, who's done some designs for some other publishers. And then the fifth one is Pete Dolan. Who, um, who has done uh, just a tremendous amount of work in general, everything from historical research, graphics, so on and so forth. So there are really five of us that, that, that are the co-designers of it and, and are, you know, and contracted with MMP. That's pretty impressive. Uh, did you know that MMP was even interested in a project like this? Because it's obviously the first thing to to stray from World War II, World War II. Well, that's an interesting question. The answer is is that no, we didn't know for sure, but but I believe it was Mike Reed has done some work for MMP in the past, and he had and and I'm working off of memory. This might not be exactly correct, but I believe that Mike in particular had um, talked with uh, Perry fairly early in the process. And so they knew what we were working on. And Chaz has known what we're working on for quite a while. So uh, although it wasn't that MMP had accepted the work, of course, not going to accept it until we go under contract and then we submit something. But but they've been cognizant of us, I'm going to guess, for the better part of 15 years at least. Oh, okay. So, so and in fact, if you go back through old annuals, you'll start to see references to Korea. Now, that's an interesting question about non-World War II, because one of the things that, um, you know, that, that one of the early objections, you don't see much of that these days, but really was, well, ASLs for World War II, and Korean War is not World War II, so, you know, Korean War is not for ASL. And that just intuitively didn't seem right. But, no. but I, I started to think about that. And I said, well, what is ASL for? And so I came up with actually four rules for what ASL is for. And the first thing is that it's for ground combat. And, and so in other words, if you want to have a war game, people say it's about World War II. But if you want to have a war game about the Battle of Britain or the Battle of Midway, then ASL is the wrong system. Yeah. So, so the first rule is that it has to be about if you're going to do ASL, it has to be about ground combat. The second rule is that uh, the squad of approximately, let's say, five to fifteen people is a unit of fire and maneuver, and as are individual vehicles and guns. And that's actually a fairly profound point because you. you ASL really doesn't work, say, for the Napoleonic Wars or the American Civil War. Um, there, there wasn't squad fire and maneuver in the Napoleonic Wars, and there wasn't in the American Civil War. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit about why that is with the third point. But if, if squad, if it's fundamentally not about squads, if squads are not a tactical unit of fire and maneuver, then you really can't do ASL. And by the way, that's not just about going back in time to um, the Napoleonic Wars and the American Civil War. One of the most interesting operations in World War II was called Operation Gunnerside, which was generally regarded as the most successful sabotage operation of the war. This is... Um, when uh, the Norwegians went in and blew up the uh, Hydra Norsk uh, Ver uh, Vermorf plant, um, you know, oh, yeah. to, to the heavy water plant, heavy water. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, that's talking about, you know, what was it, about half a dozen very highly motivated individuals going in to do sabotage. You really can't do something like that in ASL. Why? Because the squad is not the center of the action. At mm. that point, it's an individual covert sort of thing. So, so you know, it's not just that you can't do Napoleonics, but you can't do sort of sabotage and espionage and, you know, most resistance type operations. It just doesn't fit what ASL is about. Which leads to the third thing about does it, something work for ASL, and that's that the weapons and technology generally have to be that of World War II. Um, you can't have sport and phalanxes, you can't have Roman legions, and you can't have musket-armed regiments because those kind of units fought in mass close-order ranks. The reason why they fought in mass close-order ranks is because that's the only way you could get enough firepower. You know, one guy with a spear or with a musket is really basically ineffective. Yeah. Even a yeah. squad size is basically ineffective. And the reason why you could have mass ranks is because the enemy didn't have much firepower either. Um, if you, you know, think about it mentally, um, you know, a, a, a Spartan phalanx is approaching you and you've got a machine gun. I mean, you'd mow them down in, in huge amounts. So, so. You've got to have technology that's sort of World War II-ish. That means rifles, machine guns, and, and, and that's kind of 20th century, arguably into the 21st century, because, in fact, if you look at weapons today, we can talk about sort of modern ASL, but, but, but we still have tanks and, and, and rifles and machine guns. And if you brought someone from World War II to take a look at the military of today, they would recognize what it is. I mean, obviously, the tanks are vastly better. The, you know, the, the rifles have night vision goggles and all sorts of things like that. But, but they would sort of recognize it. Whereas as if you showed the weapons of today to um, a Roman legion, they would have no idea what's going on here. I mean, once it started shooting, they might get it. But, but so, so you got the third criteria is you got to have weapons that are kind of like World War II weapons, basically, um, which actually does raise the next point, which is how, you know, you world Korean War just started five years after World War II. So it's basically fought with World War II technology. How far in the future can you go? And that's an interesting question. But what what ends up happening is that when you start getting into things like guided missiles and night vision equipment and reactive armor and laser range finders and helicopters, um, you probably can do something that looks something like ASL, but you really have to rewrite chapters C, D, and E heavily. It's not just like, oh, we're going to come out with a new module. It's, it's almost like a new uh, flavor of ASL. Hmm. So, so the third criteria is that the weapons have to be um, basically World War II technology weapons. The fourth criteria, and this is less intuitive, but it's, it, it gets intuitive when you think about it, is... You know, because immediately people think, well, I'd like to have a Vietnam War. Um, I'd like to have a Vietnam War module for ASL. And, yeah. and to some extent, you can do that, um, you know, although you'd run into the technology issue, particularly with regard to helicopters. By the way, we don't have helicopters in this module because helicopters were used in Korea, but they weren't. But they were used for things like um, liaison and medevac. They weren't called yeah. the scope of an ASL scenario. So why put in all that complexity? Yeah, but Vietnam, they certainly are. And and so could you put helicopters in the ASL? Yeah, sure you could. In fact, some third party people have already done it. But but one of the problems, you know, and there are a lot of battles in Vietnam um, in the Vietnam War that could you could certainly represent with ASL, but there are a lot that you couldn't. And that's also true, say, of Iraq and Afghanistan, because 
In, in World War II, at least the kinds of battles that ASL represents, the, the, the combatants were openly identified as such, and they openly bear poor arms. And they fought to achieve decisive victory by controlling terrain and destroying the enemy. Now, when you have guerrilla warfare and counterinsurgency and, and essentially political warfare, where it's, it's perceptions, not battlefield results that are really the bottom line, then ASL doesn't work well. You know, a, a scenario where, let's say an Iraq-type scenario where um, the insurgents win because they blow up one Humvee and, and, um, and uh, take a video of it and put it on YouTube or Al Jazeera or whatever and show how they beat the infidels, that doesn't make much of an ASL scenario. It's not a very interesting scenario. So you've you got to have conventional warfare. You can't have um, covert things. And, and, and for those four, once you look at those four criteria – then you then you then you say now I need to find situations that fit those four criteria, and Korea is is a no brainer. First of all, it's a very interesting situation. I mean, the Korean War I believe is actually one of the more important events of the 20th century, even though it's quote the forgotten war. But it only happened five years after World War II, and um, basically it was fought with the same kind of stuff in this, in more or less the same way. I mean, obviously it wasn't an all out war you know, with, with mass armor offensives, but it was, uh, you know, it was basically the same kind of warfare. And there certainly were non-conventional aspects, but the majority of it was, um, was conventional warfare, you know, fought with squads as a, as a unit. The majority of it, of course, was fought on the ground. Well, there certainly were air and naval components to it. And uh, the technology was World War II technology. Yeah, I think it fits perfectly. So, so it's a perfect fit. I mean, you know, the, the, the next obvious one is the, the, the next two obvious ones, we'll have to see how they picked up, are the, the Spanish Civil War, which, which third-party manufacturers have already done. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the Arab-Israeli wars, at least through 1956, are, um, are also perfect for ASL. In particular, the 1948 war is going to be tough in some cases because a lot of it really was – was was somewhat unconventional guerrilla warfare, but the 1956 Arab-Israeli War um, is a perfect one for ASL, and I'd really love to see somebody do that. But um, so anyway, the 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 bottom line is that the Korean War is a perfect fit for the ASL system, and it's an interesting subject. And you know, World War II was so immense that you'll never truly cover it. I mean, you could. You, you could probably come up with 100,000 ASL scenarios to represent World War II, but there comes a point where, you know, after we've hit the 100th Stalingrad scenario and the 200th, you know, paratroopers in Normandy scenario, um, we've really done World War II, which is an, in ASL, which really, if you think about it, is an incredible achievement that we have this one game system that can represent, you know, the, the greatest, you know, really – the entire scope of the greatest, you know, of ground tactical ground warfare, the greatest event in history. So it's an extraordinary achievement, and 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 it'll never really end because you can always do new hassles and things like that. But but by and large, you know, it's hit the end of the road. And so I think that, you know, we, we've simply done it all, which is, as I said, is astonishing. And and so I think it's time to start doing some other interesting things um, outside of World War II. And uh, the Korean War got my interest for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Not to me, it seemed always like a big, perfect fit. And boy, you've really thought that out a lot. Can you go back and just tell me 
because uh, I was just jotting this down, what number four is on what is ASL? Because I, I... The, the fourth point is that you have to have conventional warfare where the, the sides oh, are okay. identified as combatants and openly bearing arms. Yeah, so okay. not guerrilla warfare. Okay. ASL is not good for guerrilla warfare and insurgencies, except when the guerrillas and insurgents and partisans are acting as more or less conventional forces. Yeah, like some of the partisan scenarios. That's right. That's right. At that point, they're actually acting as, as, as armed, you know, as, as quasi-conventional armed forces. But, you know, the kind of thing where someone puts, uh, you know, puts a crowbar under a railroad track and, a, you know, and a, and a train gets disrupted, that really doesn't fit into an ASL scenario where someone, you know, distributes leaflets, you know, advocating resistance or something like that. It's just, it's not going to fit into ASL. Yeah. Now, for your own personal, you mentioned your bookshelf. So, how, so uh, were you um, pretty well schooled in Korea before this or did you learn as you as you went? I really learned as I went. Um, I mean, I my my advice is I buy books about military and aerospace, and I've got really a phenomenal personal library. I've, I've got I don't know how many books, but I guess uh, somewhere in the area of three thousand. Um, and um, you know, so hey, I'm an addict, so let's just buy more. So <laughs> I did a, a tremendous amount of uh, book buying, and then there's a lot of material that you can download off the web and and so on and so forth. So. Um, uh, you know, I've got built up quite a library and learned as I went along. And then for obviously the amount of publications devoted to the Korean War are, are a minute fraction of what you have for World War II, but it's still, there's an awful lot. Yeah. Um, then when you get into the, did you also develop scenarios for it or? Um, I personally only did one scenario. Um, other people have done others, but, um, you know, one of the things about it, I mean, we'll have a, I think it's a 12 scenarios. I don't remember how many are in, in the box, but you know, one of the things about ASL is that the real key is to get out the rules, the counters, the map boards. And once you do that, then the community will, will supply scenarios without end. Yeah. So, so, you know, the scenarios in the box get us going. Um, but, but in a way, that's almost the least important part of the product, in my opinion. Yeah, it says there'll be 16 in the product from the pre-order yeah. page. Oh, so. Sounds great. So, so the key elements, then, that you created are the, the chapter rules? Yeah, we have um, Chapter W, which is the Korean War rules, which is really is, is not a big deal. I can talk about those in a minute. We have Chapter H, which is um, um, for both the UN forces and the Communist forces. Um, we've got four new, uh, map boards and then you've got, you know, other stuff like a chapter divider. Um, but it's not, it's not going to be very complicated. I mean, I mean, anyone who's played ASL at a, at, let's say an intermediate level is going to be able to pick this up really quickly. Um, chapter W for example, is, is, I mean, you know, the inherent nature of how ASL is written is that it's always wordy because it's very precise, you know, but but the vast majority of concepts that we have are, are stuff that you've already seen. So um, there are really only a couple of things that are significantly new, one of which is the terrain. Um, the hills in ASL, in my view, are kind of odd. You know, you can drive up and down these hills. And, and in some parts of the world, that's true. But those really are hard, hardly even hills. They're like rises. I mean, I, yeah. live in, I live in Connecticut here, and, 
And, you know, we are, it's hardly a mountainous state, although in places it's a hilly state. And you're not driving out. You couldn't be driving a tank up and down the hills in Connecticut. In Korea, they're a lot rougher than they are in Connecticut. Yeah, so, that's, yeah. So what we've done is we've done two things. First of all, we've created some new map boards, which are, are quite interesting because very deliberately, although they're fairly bare, as, as the hills in Korea tend to be, they don't have a lot of vegetation. But, you know, with a typical board on ASL, like board two, map, you know, mountainous board, like uh, board two or nine or 15, you can sit up on top of the hill with a machine gun and basically you can hose down anybody who comes up. But, you know, in, in, in real hills, particularly the real hills in Korea, um, you know, there were all sorts of uh, topography and, and gullies and crags and, and bends and twists. So even though there isn't much vegetation, you can sneak up these hills without, you know, having them dominated by somebody with a machine gun on the top. So, so first of all, the terrain itself is kind of interesting on the boards. But second of all, we've created a new kind of terrain by SSR. Um, we've, we create... Um, uh, we've created something called steep hills. And the way I like to think about it is that steep hills are to hills as heavy jungle is to woods. Um, pretty much you can't drive vehicles over steep hills except on roads. And um, they're just tough going in general. And so whereas, a, you know, a normal ASL hill you can drive over and, yeah, they slow you down a bit, but they don't slow you down once you invoke steep hills terrain, um, you're done. It's infantry terrain. You're not driving vehicles up and down because you're not allowed to. And and I think that those rules are going to see a lot of use outside of Korea because it's it's hardly like Korea has the only you know oh. steep rugged hills in the world where you can't drive a vehicle up and down. In fact, I got some of the inspiration by um, for these rules. Um, I was in Israel and I was. Um, looking at the, the road that connects Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem, which was the site of significant battles in their War of Independence in 1948 and 49, because they were trying to you know, reinforce and supply Jerusalem. And, um, you know, I was trying to think, well, now, how would I represent these, this, this terrain in ASL? And uh, this is when I was there. And I realized that you really couldn't do it because you just can't, you know, for example, vehicles have to travel on roads there. Um, you just can't drive off the road because it's too it's too rough. So, um, you know, I think that the, the, the new terrain, both the, the style of board and the um, I hope that other people, you know, create more boards that are kind of in this style. And then they, you know, combine with the steep hills terrain. I think that's going to be very interesting and it's going to have a lot of applications outside of just Korea. Yeah, I mean, looking, I'm sorry. Well, looking at the map, too, it looks like is there a ground level within the big hill mass? Well, what you have is four geomorphic boards, and you can do two things with them. You can either make them one big hill, a really big hill, or you can arrange it the other way and make it a valley. Oh, right. That's really important because there were a lot of times in World War II where, excuse me, in the Korean War, where an American unit would be, you know, trying to retreat down a valley. And American units tended to be roadbound because they had a lot of vehicles. And, um, you know, the the Chinese in particular, who had no vehicles in the early part of the war, just had a light infantry force, you know, could cut off the Americans because the Americans were roadbound and the Chinese were not. So so the idea that you, know, you can use these boards either to create a, a really big hill or a, a, you know, a mountainous valley where um, a, a vehicle heavy force is stuck to the roads, you know, is, is what these are about. 
Yeah, because I was just watching uh, the PBS special on the Chosen Reservoir and stuff, and yeah. you, know, you see, yeah. always see those columns moving along and being attacked. That's exactly it. So, so that's what the terrain's about. The other really significant change is the uh, what we call the CPVA, which is the Communist People's Volunteer Army. That was the uh, Communist Chinese who intervened in the fall of 1950. And, um, and they're a very interesting nationality because the, the Chinese army at the beginning of the war in particular was almost exclusively an infantry army. They had basically no artillery and no vehicles at all. Um, they um, were a peasant army, a mass peasant army. They had huge amounts of people, but they had no radios or anything like that. I mean, they communicated by voice and by bugle. By bugle, yeah. They used, you know, the the... the 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 stereotype is that they use human waves, but they actually didn't use human waves very much at all. But they did attack in mass, and they and and there were just huge numbers of them. So Americans sort of thought it was a human wave, but it wasn't a human wave in the way that the Russians did human waves in the early part of World War II. The Russians didn't do much human waves at the end of the war either. But um, in order to represent the and what what we wanted to do was to represent the Chinese in a way that. Um, not to invent new concepts, but rather to use stuff that ASL players already know. So the Chinese step reduce, just like the Japanese do. Oh, okay. Um, the Chinese move with something called infantry platoon movement. Um, so in general, you can't just move a squad here, a squad there. You move them as, as, as you know, multi-hex, um, multi-hex stacks, I guess you could call them. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we've tried to again, you know, put all these rules in, in a way that if you've done things like human wave and, and platoon movement with AFVs and, um, and the Japanese, that you should pick this up very quickly. Obviously, we have to word everything precisely and exactly, but, you know, if you've done this other stuff before, then, then you'll pick up the Chinese very quickly. But they certainly are a very unique nationality. Um, they're also considerably different than the GMD Chinese um, from World War II. So um, that's why we call them the uh, CPVA, to, to, to differentiate them from the uh, Chinese of World War II. Did they actually have that name, or is it just a designation? No, 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 that's what they had. The reason why they called them the CPVA, or the Chinese People's Volunteer Army, is that um, the... The, the real name of the Communist Chinese Army was the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. But, but they wanted to maintain the, the, a little bit of face saving that these were volunteers, not the PLA, to, so it wasn't China directly going to war with the United States. I mean, that was a fiction that everyone, of course, looked right through, but for some reason, people thought that was an important distinction. Huh. Interestingly, um, at the time, the, the U.S. and the, the U.N. didn't really typically call them CPVA. We typically call them the CCF or the Communist Chinese Forces, but, but that's not what they call themselves. And so we have, um, uh, we have a, a, a convention in this game that we call forces what they call themselves. So, for example, the North Korean Army um, is called the Korean People's Army. Because they didn't regard, the, you know, the, their whole ideology was they didn't just represent North Korea. They were the only legitimate um, uh, government in Korea. So it was yeah. the Korean People's Army. The South Korean Army also regarded itself as the only legitimate um, government in the area. So it's the ROK Army. The Republic yeah, the of, Republic of Korea. Korea, yeah. 
So, so we don't actually use words like North Korea, South Korea, Communist Chinese forces. We we call them what they call themselves, translated in English, of course. Yeah. So how many different counter types are there? Well, let's see. You got the Four. Americans, um, and and they use the um, basically the U.S. Army counter set from World War II and the uh, seven six eight Marine units. In addition, we have six six seven um, um, uh, paratrooper units, and uh, we have six six eight Rangers uh, who are um, uh, you know who have self rally and all sorts of other. They're they're commandos. And and basically they're they're wonder troops, but you only would use them as that way in very small groups. If you're going to use them in larger quantities, then you really should treat them more as conventional troops. But they are six six eight wonder troops. Um, the uh, Mike Reed, who who, who is uh, you know one of the members of our team and is a graduate of the Army Ranger School, took particular pride in in uh, having the Rangers there. Um, we have the uh, the uh, British forces um, who represent what we call BCFK, uh, British Commonwealth Forces in Korea. So they represent the British, um, the uh, Australians, the Canadians, and the New Zealand forces. They use the the same basic um, uh, counters as from um, you know the existing module. So we don't duplicate them again. Um, there are also though our Royal Marine Commandos in there who are another kind of special operations force. And, and, and you could, I think that you could use the, the, the U S Rangers and the Royal Marine Commandos. You could probably use them in World War II scenarios to represent some of the special forces there. I mean, I don't think that the, the, the Ranger, the, the, the six, six, seven counters and the, uh, uh, was it the 747 counters adequately represent either the Rangers or the, uh, like, for example, the first special services force. So um, I think those counters are going to get use in World War II. Um, then we have the Republic of Korea forces, which is an entirely new counter set. Um, those are not only the, the Republic of Korea Army, but also the Korean Marine Corps. And we've got a, a, a couple of different flavors of um Korea Marine Corps um, forces. We have the early war Korea Marine Corps, which were actually armed with Japanese weapons. And then we have the, the, a little later, they were rearmed and basically taken under the wing of the U.S. Marine Corps. So they, they, they get considerably, uh, you know, uh, heavied up in terms of firepower. Um, we've what, got what, what, what color, the, what color will that, will those be? They are green on the outside and tan on the inside. Hmm. So um, because they're green on the outside, um, you could use uh, U.S. support yes. weapons. Yeah. They have their own support weapons and vehicles, but you could always use U.S. support weapons and hmm. vehicles. Okay. Too, yeah. Since they're armed by the United States, I mean, it's not like they have anything that the uh, United States doesn't have. The next nationality that we have we call the OUNC or the Other United Nations Command. There were lots of other countries that contributed forces. They ranged from Colombia, Ethiopia, Thailand, uh, France, Netherlands, Belgium, Turkey. Um, I'm sure I've forgotten a few, and I don't mean to leave anybody out because they all were pretty valiant. But but those those units have the green American color around the outside and the blue French color in the center. And those represent all the, the smaller contingents there. Um, typically, those units, those uh, with the Turks contributed a brigade. The rest of the unit, the rest of the nationalities contributed battalions, which were attached either to um, British Commonwealth or or U.S. formations as as like the fourth uh, battalion in a regiment. And again, they're they're all U.S. armed, so they could use American. They, they have their own equipment and a few vehicles, but they could always use the American stuff too. 
Um, you've got the, the, the KPA, the uh, North Korean forces, the Korean People's Army. They use the Russian counter set. Um, we've, we've given them like Korean named single man counters and a few other things. But basically, um, they're, they're, they follow the rules for uh, uh, Russians. Um, because they were armed by the Russians and trained by the Russians and, and so on. So, so, you know, why, why, why come up with a few more sheets of counters? So pretty much we reuse the Russian counter set for the North Koreans. And then we've got the, uh, the CPVA, um, who have an entirely you know, new set of everything. Um, okay. they're, they're, they had an incredible collection of different stuff. And so, um, there are really two. There's several kinds of of CPVA squads. You've got what we call the initial intervention squads. Um, they are uh, the initial intervention squads would typically be armed with um, either Japanese weapons or weapons that they captured from the um, uh, GMD and the Chinese Civil War, which was ended a year before Korea, or indigenously produced weapons. China did have a, um, a weapons manufacturing industry and included some American weapons that, you know, because remember, we had been supplying the GMD. So one of the, the things that I used for um, designing the uh, Chinese, we used, was we used a lot of information on the Chinese army in World War II and in the Civil War. Because um, those forces really essentially, were, again, were in Korea. Certainly, the weapons were. So you've got the initial intervention, and um, their support. They've got support weapons, which typically represent um, either Chinese um, manufactured or um, um, Chinese manufactured uh, licensed or unlicensed copies of other weapons or um, uh, Japanese stuff. And then you've got the and the, and they've got some. Um, and if you're going to give them some guns, they've got um, what are basically some 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 mostly Chinese stuff. Although you could use certain other nationalities, but I'm sorry, not Chinese, Japanese stuff. So, for example, you've got the the little 70 millimeter uh, howitzer, the 75 millimeter artillery piece, the 47 millimeter anti-tank gun, all Japanese stuff. Um, then you've got what we call the Soviet armed CPVA. Um, those are units that, um, they're pretty heavily armed with submachine guns. So they've got uh, a lot of firepower, you know, with two, uh, heck range. And so, you know, combine that with the mass tactics and, um, and the step reduction, and they're really nasty if they can get in close. Um, they've got Soviet style support weapons mostly. Um, and, uh, they've got, uh, Soviet, uh, guns. The Chinese had some, um, armored vehicles in Korea, but, they claim that they fought some tank battles, except that our forces never reported that they were fighting Chinese tanks. So we're pretty skeptical. So we don't actually give them any uh, any vehicles hmm. in, in the in the game. But uh, there are a lot of them. Another interesting um, Chinese type is what we call the Grenadier squads. Um, they don't carry any guns. They just carry uh, they just carry uh, grenades. So really, all they can do oh. is is uh, close combat and things like that. Wow, yeah. Know, early part of the war, the Chinese, particularly the Chinese forces, were very very poorly equipped, and so um, they would send in um, units that were you know every soldier didn't have a rifle or a submachine gun, and they would either pick them up off of dead comrades or just attack with grenades. Huh. Um, so, um, so the Chinese are really a, a, a different kind of enemy, and and to and to be honest, in in that terrain, in that situation, I think that they're one of the most um, one of the most capable enemies that the United States has ever fought. Um, I remember during Iraq, you know, during the Iraq War, and people were saying, "Oh my God, this is like the worst you know disaster in American military history and what have you." And it was like, 
you know, putting aside the merits of what happened there, I mean, you know, A, I'm not sure that anything in Iraq was equal to, say, the Battle of the Bulge or the loss of the Philippines, but just in the Korean War, I mean, the Chinese really did terrible stuff to us, particularly in 1950. Oh, yeah. And, and, and of course, the price that they paid for doing this was that they took hellacious casualties. Um, the Chinese are interesting because they're not like the Japanese where they had a cult of death and they, you know, they wanted to die. Um, because that was a glorious thing to do. On the other hand, they had a very high tolerance for um, casualties. I mean, after all, later in the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, Mao um, became the all-time champion, um, you know, um, mass murderer, and exceeding both Hitler and Stalin. So, sure. you know, this was a regime where human life wasn't particularly value. And so if you take their tactics and then they're just, you know, willingness to absorb enormous casualties on their very formidable enemy and a very different one than what you'll see elsewhere in ASL. So I think it's going to just be really interesting. So you said the KPA forces use their Russian counters, so no smoke exponent. How about as, as a lover of smoke, how do the other uh, nationalities, the OUNC? You know, and, uh, God, I'd have to look that up to be specific, but you know, the 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 OUNC and the um, and the and the rocks the, the the South Koreans because they're basically armed by the U.S. tend to follow the U.S. pattern. They often don't have quite as much firepower or quite as much smoke exponent or anything mm -hmm. like that. But basically, they're you know they're pretty similar to the Americans in terms of their equipment. Gotcha. So, um, you know, you got a lot of new nationality, a lot of, there are a lot of toys in the box. And, um, you know, as always, I think that the most interesting stuff is going to be done, not with the scenarios in the box, but what um, other designers, designers who are far more talented than I am. Of course, that's a pretty low bar. But, you know, when, when some of the top <laughs> ASL talent um, gets to work on developing stuff, I mean, I know that some of the people, I'm, I'm not going to spill the beans, but some of the people on the design team, um, you know, and some of those people are, 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 have certainly produced other stuff in ASL are already at work on, on, on you know, uh, various derivative products of this module. And I think that uh, there's going to be some really cool stuff. I mean, the Korean War also just is very well fitted for ASL because it's, it's tends to be infantry heavy. The battles were not huge. So, you know, when you say you got a scenario that's Stalingrad, what's well, not Stalingrad? That's, you know, one corner of, uh, of, you know, one little corner of Stalingrad. But, you know, a lot of the battles in Korea were sort of battalion-sized, company battalion, regiment-sized battles. So you actually can can create the battle in an entirety in an ASL scenario. Yeah, I noticed it says also there's bayonet charge rules coming out, which I think yeah. were originally released. Were there two different, you, you might know this because you know kinetic energy and all that. Weren't there two different third-party people that did bayonet charges? I, I believe that's correct. I honestly don't remember, but um, I haven't looked at any of the kinetic energy stuff in a long time. But, you know, there was some, not only Americans did some bayonet charges, I know that the, the French and, and in particular the Turks also um, did some bayonet charges. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of uh, chrome to put in. Um, you know, we do a lot of, we have a lot of, of, of what I'll call chrome, which is stuff that, you know, doesn't, Probably in the grand scheme isn't that important, but, you know, it's kind of interesting stuff. So, for example, we've got some new airplanes in there. Um, I'm an Air Force vet. Pete Dolan is a retired Air Force colonel. So, of course, we want to have Air Force stuff in there. 
So, for example, we've got, um, you know, first of all, the the FB44s are still in the game. Those represent um, Corsairs and Mustangs. Um, but we've also got the FB50s, which are jet fighter bombers. Um, and we've got AD Sky Raiders, which was uh, a Navy attack airplane, which is a really uh, effective airplane, probably the best close air support airplane in the game. Um, and uh, we also have um, uh, airborne forward air controllers, and we've got uh, what we call TACPs, which are tactical air control parties or forward air controllers on the ground. Think of them as sort of forward observers for uh, air power, and they make, uh, they make the uh, airstrikes more effective. Cool. So, Got counters for them too. It's over, or another example is they're sort of like a surefire control party. Yeah. Or uh, for air 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 power, and certainly those roles um, could also be used in World War II. Um, so so there's there's fun little chrome like that. Another area um, that we're working on. In fact, the rules are still in a little bit of flux as of today. Or that we've got searchlights. Um, they were both the big searchlights that they use for illumination, and they oh also put uh, searchlights on tanks. So um, that'll uh, uh, change some night scenarios. There were m- much of the war was fought at night. So, um, um, and I'm not really very good at night rules at all. In fact, I'm terrible at them. But uh, um, you know, that that's an area that people probably ought to brush up on um, if they want to do Korean War stuff, because so many of the battles were fought at night. In particular. The uh, Chinese like to attack at night because, remember, this was before night vision goggles and, you know, thermal imagers and all that existed. So so night enabled the Chinese to avoid American air power and American artillery, which was our strong, you know, which was our forte. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, that's a thing. Another piece of chrome that we have in there is, is VT, which is proximity fused um, artillery. So instead of the artillery being, you know, contact fused where, you know, it, you shoot the round, this is for OBA, where you fire it and basically it explodes when it hits the ground and a lot of the force gets absorbed into the ground. You know, what, what a VT fuse is, a proximity fuse is a little radar set that they screwed into the nose of the artillery shell. And so it would uh, explode in the air and, and send uh, uh, fragmentation all over the place. We actually first started using these in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. Well, we first started using them for anti-aircraft fire, um, particularly against the kamikazes. But then in the Battle of the Bulge, they started using them, and, and they were just devastating against the Germans. And, if, and uh, they, you know, they typically give a, a minus one DRM um, um, to artillery. So... Uh, you know, if you've got, for example, a, a Korean War scenario where you've got Americans in bunkers, you know, on a, on a ridge line, the Chinese are attacking at night, you can call in this VT-fused um, artillery right on your own position, and you'll be okay because you're in the bunkers, but the Chinese who are out there in the open are going to get shredded by this stuff. Wow. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we, we've tried to, um, you know, add in chrome that makes things realistic. How's the reliability of the uh, field radios? Any better? Um, no, <laughs> no, it's not. Like, in fact, if I recall, the war, you know, the the the, the United to. States entered the war, and 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 what happened is that after World War II, we just wanted to mobilize. We wanted to get back to normality. Yeah. And and so, whatever money we had to spend on defense was going towards jet airplanes and nuclear bombs. Mm. And it wasn't going so 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 you know we weren't investing anything in the in the army. Yeah. Uh, 
So pretty much what we went into Korea with was, um, uh, you know, broken down remnants of World War II Army and, and, and units that were very poorly trained because they were focusing on um, uh, and very poorly equipped because, first of all, they were underfunded. And second of all, they were focusing on occupation in Japan. That's where the, for the initial forces came from. The Republic of Korea forces were also very poorly equipped. Um, Partly, we just weren't that interested in doing it, partly because uh, we were somewhat suspicious that uh, Syngman Rhee, who was the president of Korea, was going to launch his own war to reunify the Korean peninsula under his rule. And so we didn't particularly want to um, very well equip the, the ROC forces so that they could go on the offensive. Um, so the, 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 the early war uh, ROC forces um, have special rules for them, and they're, they're just terrible. And the early war U.S. are their early war U.S. Army rules where they're also terrible. I mean, they're some of, those are some of the worst uh, forces in, in the ASL system. I mean, they've got every imaginable penalty that you can think of. I mean, I'd have to look up, but, you know, it's like red to hit and, you know, ammo shortage and all this sort of stuff. So stuff's very unreliable. Um, the, the one thing that the U.S. Army forces do have is once, once they get going is they have, you know, no one had been building any tanks or anything after World War II, but there were a whole lot of vehicles that were in production at the end of the war and either never saw combat in World War II or, um, or, or just saw it at the very end and didn't make the ASL counter set. And we've got the, but those are the things that by and large the Korean War was fought with. So you've got these U.S. vehicles, which are not spectacular, um, but they're very good. And they were based on combat proven World War II stuff, um, you know, with all the lessons in there. And, and they're pretty good. And so, you know, there's some pretty good American stuff. And, and, you know, if, if people want to play fantasy or hypothetical scenarios, either, um, you know, what if the Germans had hung on for a while longer? Um, you've got the, the stuff to do it. Um, you've also got, you know, what if, um, for example, the, the Americans and the Russians had, uh, what if the Berlin airlift had turned into, uh, you know, an American-Russian clash in 1948? You know, these are the sorts of vehicles that would have been used. So you've got, you know, you've got actually a lot of new American vehicles. Um, the British also have some new vehicles, um, the most notable, which is the Centurion Mark III, um, which is, I think, probably the best tank in the ASL system. I mean, it has this um, 83 millimeter gun that fires APDS, and um, um, it's, it's a truly spectacular weapon. Um, if, it, um, if it squared off with a King Tiger, it would generally launch the King Tiger into low Earth orbit. Or launch, I should probably more accurately launch the vaporized remains of the King Tiger yeah. lower Earth orbit. It's a very capable thing. But by the time the British brought it there, um, there were actually no more tanks left to shoot. Um, the, the North Koreans attacked with a fair amount of tanks, but 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 those those once the Americans landed with a serious force, you know, those didn't last very long. So the in fact the only time the Centurions were used for tank versus tank combat is that um, they had also brought some Cromwells, which were for reconnaissance and for uh, artillery forward observers. And the, the Chinese captured one, and then the, the British shot it up with a Centurion. That was the only British uh, tank versus tank combat um, in the war. But uh, they do have these Centurion three tanks, and they are very impressive tanks. So, um, you know, there's, there's definitely some interesting equipment in there. I can only imagine there's going to be quite a flurry of activity of new scenarios coming up, uh, both for I the World so. War II and for the Korean stuff, based upon 
the uh, the new stuff you've included in the module. Yeah, and, and one of the things is is that some of the stuff that we've included um, was actually used in the very end of World War II. So you know, I think you'll see some of those. Um, I think you'll see some of those. Um, 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 vehicles used in, you know, uh, kind of March, April, May, 1945 scenarios. The other area that, you know, if you want to do hypothetical scenarios that, that this equipment could be used is, you know, what if, what if Japan hadn't surrendered and we had invaded? This is right. also the kind of equipment that would have been used there. Yeah. So, um, in fact, some of, some of it, for example, the, the, um, uh, Sherman tank mounted flamethrowers, um, which is a new model, not the one that's in, uh, Yanks. Um, that was designed exactly for that uh, for that scenario. And yeah. Of course, they weren't used; they were stored after the war. And then uh, the Marines brought some of them to uh, Korea. So, uh, I mean, it sounds all you know very obviously very well thought out, very well organized. Eighteen years in the making. Did you do you have a plan, kind of that you were following for how this thing would come together or did it all just kind of happen organically with with you guys just talking back and forth and yeah more the, more the latter and and, yeah. and the reason is there are a couple reasons why um one of them is that you know when you're working with volunteers you know I, i'm a project manager by by that's what i do for a living um, and so managing teams, particularly teams of people that are just, you know, geographically distributed is what I do. So this was actually very similar to what I do at work, but with the people at work, they get paid. And if they don't do things on certain schedules, you know, they don't get, have a job anymore. Um, obviously when you're working with totally with volunteers, you can't do that. So it sort of just organically moved forward. And, and, you know, there were some times when it was more active than others and people would be interested in something and work in that. And, you know, in one way, um, by I remember that maybe by mid-2000, I mean, the rules were written, and I'm going to put a big asterisk after that, in that, in that I think basically every feature that we have today was in the rules by mid-2000, which is to say 17 years ago. But I'm willing to bet that there isn't a single sentence that's actually remained the same. Mm. Um, it is. It is... The amount of attention to detail it takes to write ASL stuff is just out of control. Yeah. Um, you know, you got rules on steep hills. Well, what if a glider lands in steep hills? Well, right. There's not even any gliders in Korea, but you want to have a complete set of rules. So, so you know, there's all sorts of esoteric, and we have. There are some frightfully smart people in a, in, in the ASL world. I mean, people who are just out and out geniuses who will come up with, you know you know, some, some little scenario and you, and you know, some strange situation, you got to deal with that. And then there's the weird, um, um, then there's the weird, um, um, uh, historical stuff you got to research. Like for example, the, you know, we have the 105 millimeter M2A1 howitzers, which is the basic, you know, U.S. howitzer in the war. And, and we have them in, you know, the Americans use the ones from, um, you know, Yanks. But we also have them in the colors of the Republic of Korean Army. And we have them in the um, OUNC, the uh, other UN command, because the, uh, the Turks had, uh, ha you know, had some of these, had some batteries of these things. So here's an interesting question. Did the Koreans and the, and the Turks have the same special ammunition that American forces did, the canister and white phosphorus or smoke or whatever it is. Um, 
how do you even research something like that? So, for example, in that in that case, I believe what we said was, um, yes, they did. And the reason is, is because they all drew ammunition from the same um, U.S. Army unit that was the ammunition depot for Korea. And so it would, it, probably they had the same um, ammunition loads. Do we know that for sure? No. But you do that. Or another thing, um, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to look up, you know, what forces used what tanks, but what forces used what trucks? Mm. You know, we knew that the that the British Commonwealth forces used the um, American jeeps, and we know that they used American two and a half ton trucks. Did they use the three quarter ton trucks? Well, we thought not. And then I bought a book on Canadian armor in the Korean War. Talk about esoteric stuff. And sure enough, they used the three quarter ton trucks. So you got to mention in Chapter H that well, the Canadians did use this. I mean, and it's or 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 all the the RFs, the rarity factors, the support weapon allotment charts, the OBA availability. Um, you know, there's just an enormous amount of detail and it's all got to be done. And, and, and then it's got to be cross-referenced because, for example, the RF is mentioned in the vehicle notes. The RF is mentioned in the RF charts. The RF is mentioned in the vehicle listings. Did we, are they all consistent? I, I mean... The amount of time I, 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 you know, I do, I'm a project manager, as I said, so I do project estimation. I think that if you took all the time that was spent by all the people on this project and you assume, I mean, basically it's a volunteer effort. I mean, let's be serious about it. Um, I mean, I'm going to get paid some little royalty and most of the, you know, some of the people are going to get like a vanity counter with their name on it or they're going to get, you know, a free copy of the game or something. But basically if you, price this stuff at the at you know at the rates of skilled engineers or software developers or business analysts or what have you i think that this module probably would have cost a better part of a million dollars to develop gets yeah, yeah. a lot of time oh no re <laughs> really I mean, I mean it's it's you're talking about tens of thousands of man hours of, of labor that go into it yeah um, and uh really it, it's it's insanity but, uh, you know, and, and, and you really don't appreciate what it takes to do it until uh, until you've done it. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. That's why we've never started such um, a project. That's good. That's good. Because, yeah. because my advice, if anyone wants to do an ASL module, not a scenario pack or something like that, but a real full-blown module, is that you should, um, you should under, first, before you do it, undergo a comprehensive psychological examination. Yeah, and only exactly. a sanity check should you then start on the project. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts, but uh, it, is, uh, it is interesting. Now, uh, where, where is the product now? I know it's gone through the pre-order and they've reached the number and all no, that. No, I don't but, think they have yet. Oh, I think I, I, I believe they reached the pre-order in yeah. space. They, um, they, yeah. I mean, you know, most ASL things. I mean, you know, it's it's well known that if you took a potato and put an ASL logo on it, it probably yeah. would, you know, hit its pre-order number within a week. Yes. Um, no, this thing I'm sure has hit every pre-order number that you can imagine. Um, yeah. uh, we, are, actually, um, you well, know, the long lead item is the is the counters, and so that was really the, those have already gone off to production. Um, the the paper stuff the 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 scenarios the chapter H chapter W the divider that stuff's pretty quick I mean that that stuff can be um, manufactured very quickly so we're 
we're just cleaning up the last little bits of that right now. Um, but it's, it's, it's mostly done. Yeah, actually, I was misreading the pre-order. The needed is eight fifty, and this this one's up to almost fifteen hundred. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, for example, um, uh, the other day, um, you know, Chapter W, the rules didn't have the footnotes in them, and then Perry sent out, you know, his edited version of the footnotes, and we took a swing at them. And the latest version of Chapter W now has the footnotes in it, and mm. and we're at that level of of minutia. Yeah. So it's it's pretty close to done. It, I'm not saying it would be releasable today, but it's it's not far from it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it looks yes. like the pre-order was, was first posted on December 29th of 2015, so almost two years. That, that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. You know, it's in, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people have put in a lot of time. Um, um, you know, we, we submitted a product. We spent, a, you know, as I said, a huge amount of time, well over a decade submitting a product. And we thought it was in pretty good shape. And, of course, MMP puts it through their process with their people. And they, uh, they do, a, a, you know, an excruciatingly thorough job yeah. um, of, of playtesting and proofreading and asking questions. And, you know, what happens if this happens at night in the jungle, you know, when the morale level is six? And did you think about that? Oh, darn, we didn't. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's a, just an iterative process of keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And what will be, of course, frustrating is that we'll have put in, you know, I don't know, 10,000 or whatever hours and 18 million versions. And it'll come out and immediately. Someone will say, oh, there's a mistake and there's a mistake. And, oh, yeah. I don't know. You know, at that point, I don't know what I'm going to do. But, uh, you know, we're doing the best we can do. It's uh, it's uh, it's extraordinarily complex. I know I've said that again and again, but it really is. I, I like the fact that on the pre-order page, they list, you know, what comes with it, the counter sheets, the chapter H. And at the bottom, the last item is a box and a lid. <laughs> yes. And in fact, we have proof, proof of the box and the lid. I think, yeah. the, 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 you know, everyone is delighted with the cover artwork, which is really nice. I was just going to say, we're, we're looking you, forward you to doing a so, little box uh, art review. It is actually a gorgeous piece of art right yeah. there. It is. It is. The only gripe I've got with it, no one asked me, but the only gripe I've got with it is that it's Americans, which is cool. But I thought it would have been neat to have um, Republic Korea forces on there um, because this is like their only shot to be on a, an ASL product. Mm, That's yeah. very, very generous of you. But yeah. maybe somebody will do that on a um, somebody will do that on some follow on product. Um, I, 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 to be honest, would would be very pleased not to have um, it portraying the Chinese or the KPA, because I think both those regimes, I'm going to let my politics get in. I think they're just some of the most loathsome regimes known to man. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of like it's, it's, the, it's the moral equivalent of the SS. Hmm. And, and, and some people, you know, I mean, listen, the SS are a historical fact, so you got to put them in the game. But let's try to minimize the uh, glorification of them. And I have pretty much I agree with that. You know, I don't want to have my that that view overwhelm the historical enough and they did exist they had certain characteristics but similarly i don't particularly like glorifying them and i uh i feel pretty much the same way about the kpa and the uh, cpba yeah given that you've got a a bookshelf that's groaning under the weight of books if somebody was approaching this topic and didn't know much about it if you could recommend one book to cover the korean war Mm -hmm. so that they could enjoy this module more fully do you have an 
Oh, wow. Um, I'd like to have my bookshelf in front of me, but then I have to walk away from my computer. I think that the best overall histories of the war, um, Alan Millett, who is a, a very prominent American military historian, he spent most of his career at Ohio State, and he's also a retired uh, colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve. Um, Alan Millett has written a two-volume history of the war. Um, the first part of it, interestingly, starts not in 1950, but in 1945, because he looks at this to some extent as a Korean Civil War, as well as a Cold War event, but mm -hmm. also Korean Civil War. His first one has to do with basically from 1945 through the outbreak of the war. The second volume has to do with um, from the outbreak of the war through 1951. And I don't know whether he's going to finish it up with one, but certainly there hasn't been one published yet from 51 to 53. But um, the advantage of, of some of the newer studies like Millet's is that they include perspectives from more Korean perspectives. And also remember that the Russians opened up their archives for a fairly short period between the end of the Cold War and then, you know, the, the advent of, you know, the new Putin authoritarianism. But, but for a while there was openness there. And so we started to get other perspectives. And I think that, that, that Millet's two volumes, which are published from the University Press of Kansas, are probably the most up-to-date um, are the most up-to-date histories of the war. But there are a lot of other good ones that are out there. You know, and then and then and those are kind of general histories of the war. And then of course you've got um, ones devoted to specific units or specific battles. Mm, and you've yeah. got, you know, the more, you know, the heavy metal sort of chapter eight stuff. Um, I, I relied very heavily as well as some books that are on the subject, you know, the 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 Osprey New Vanguard series, the uh, the uh, you know MMD squadron books, things like that. I mean, those are, those are very useful for the equipment. Right. And there's a, there's a lot of material. There's also, if you go, for example, to the U S army center for military history, there's a tremendous amount of, and also some, and also the Marine Corps, um, history site, there's a tremendous amount of high quality, um, historical material that the military, um, has produced in its in-house history programs, um, that you can download for free. And in particular, their, style of writing history tends to be very useful for people who are doing the sorts of work that we're doing because they tend to, you know, unit designations and nuts and bolts and so on and so forth. And, and, and they are real histories. They're not sort of, you know, I think some people might sort of roll their eyes at, at you know, in-house military history and go, oh, well, you know, it's just sort of a party line. Fine, but I don't think yeah. that's really the case. I think most of the history that, they, uh, you know, I can't think of a counterexample, but, but the history that they have is, is very solid stuff. So there is a tremendous, you know, if you go to both the Army and the Marine Corps historical, uh, um, you know, uh, centers, you can find a tremendous amount of very high quality material. And it's all free. Excellent. Yeah, we like that. So, well, I mean, you could you could you could read about, you know, even though, as I said, the Korean War has only um, been written about a fraction as much as World War Two, um, you could um, fill your you could fill your reading docket from now through the end of time with stuff that's out there yeah excellent and now that you've got this project kind of done <laughs> what's next what's next are you going to disney world or uh well what, what next? i'm uh i don't think i'll ever do another asl thing i think i pretty much worked <laughs> out of my system um 
you know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you think about it, I mean, this is the first ASL creative work I've ever done, and it's create a module. And, you know, there are very few people who have created a module. I haven't counted it up, but, you know, the number of people who've designed a module, and the, you know, is order of magnitude, like the number of people who've walked on the moon. I mean, it's really, really very few people. So, yeah. you know, I've, this was ridiculous to start off this way, but I did it. And, you know, once you got into it, you couldn't go, oh, God. I, at some points, I just went, I don't want to do this anymore. But, you know, you, you, at this point, it wasn't just you don't want to let down other people that have been working right. on it. So you yeah. just keep going and going and going. And I'm going to be so – it's like banging your head against the wall. It feels so much better when you stop. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, I, I'm definitely not going to do any more ASL stuff. I definitely have some other product um, projects. Um, I, I write books for fun. Um, I've had several books written on military aircraft, and um, I've had one written on the B-52 and one on the KC-135. And wow. um, I am um, need to finish up a book project on the uh, S-3 Viking. Um, I've also got uh, some projects behind that, uh, in particular one on the Air Force's use of remote pilot aircraft, or what most people call drones. And those book projects are, are you know, will sort of be my next uh, major thing. So um, if you go on to Amazon or onto the publisher's website, which is www.squadron.com, you can uh, you can see my two books on the D-52 and the KC-135. I'm looking at it right now. So um, anyway, that's very nice. That's probably that's probably what I'll do. Um, and uh, you know, I really I, it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm you know, I certainly love ASL, but actually ASL is not my real passion. My real passion is aviation and aerospace. Um, I've written some books. I'm an avid pilot, um, and uh, I love to go to uh, Air Venture, EA Air Venture, which is the huge air show in Wisconsin each summer. Um, it's the, it is, I think with, in my opinion, the greatest event in the solar system, at least. And the reason I haven't said the greatest in the galaxy is maybe there's even a better air show in some other solar system, but, um, yeah, where is that? So many, that's in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oshkosh, that's oh, it. Yeah. Guys, in your yeah. neighborhood, you guys have never been there? Never, uh, I've I did, never been I've there. I've been there once oh, and I've had a lot of friends go. Yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, if you're into World War II airplanes, I mean, right. you know, in most places, you know, you see a, a P-51 or something and you go, wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. You get to Oshkosh and there's a squadron of P-51s out there, not to mention, you know, everything else that, you know, you've read about in the books. They're flyable ones. In some cases, the only flyable airplane of that type left in the world is at Oshkosh. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's uh, last summer I went there. I, I fly out uh, with a friend and we camp out for the week. And I, I bought a flight in a B-17 and it was just so insanely cool. Although, oh, my gosh. Yeah. As I observed to my fellow um, uh, passengers on the airplane, it's particularly insanely cool because we weren't up in the stratosphere for eight hours, you know, freezing, you know, with yeah. an oxygen mask on while the Germans shot at us. So, right. so that was uh, a particularly cool way to find it. But it, it was really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really my passion. But, but ASL obviously uh, is too. It's a, it's a phenomenal game system. Um, I actually think it's too complex, but... You know, one of the things that we had to keep in mind throughout the project was that the uh, was that you know we're not here to fix ASL. We're we're here to portray Korea within the existing system. Mm -hmm. So we went out of our way to follow standard ASL practices and precedents. 
There are a lot of cases where we said, well, we could probably do this better. But nope, ASL has been around since, you know, 1985 and SL since 1977. And we're not going to go reinventing the wheel, even though we think it's better. So when we made a change, it was something that was specific to Korea and not just fixing the system. Yeah. We had some pretty uh, uh, um, um, animated arguments in the group about, about that. Um, another principle that we followed is, you know, ASL is just too complex as is. I mean, it just is. At least that's my opinion. You know, it's a great system, but it's too complex. So anything that we put in there had to, the, the increase in realism or whatever you want to call it, had to, had to, it had to earn its way in. Um, because otherwise, you know, you can just go nuts. Um, so, you know, we tried to, um, in, in almost all cases, you know, repurpose an existing rule rather than, you know, reinvent, uh, uh, rather than just invent stuff from scratch. So the greatest example of that is the Chinese. Yes, they're a new nationality, but, you know, a lot of the rules are basically ported from the Japanese mm -hmm. and some of the rules are ported from human waves, even though they didn't per se do human waves, but we do some similar stuff. And, uh, you know, that way, if you know those things, you can pick up the Chinese very quickly. Yeah, it was very wise to do that. That's for sure. So, well, we should wrap it up. We're very uh, glad that you've spent all this time uh, preparing this product for us. We're really looking it, it, forward it, to yeah. seeing it. It really is appreciated. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that, first of all, I'm hoping that people enjoy it just as, you know, when I when I when I wrote those books on the B fifty two and the KC one thirty five, I mean that you know that you, you don't make money doing. That. I mean you make money, but you make trivial amounts of money. But the real sort of earning, you know, fun part, aside from the fact that I got to go flying in those airplanes, um, was that you know people would you know contact me or write reviews and say you know I was a crew chief or a pilot or something like that in this airplane for twenty years and I learned something by reading the book and I found no mistakes in there or anything and that's really you know. That's like the real psychic income. And similarly here, you know, when people go, that's a cool module. And I hope yeah. that people think that um, that's going to really be a, a, a great thing. I'm going to I'm going to have a real sense of pride of that. Well, time will tell. And uh, maybe we'll check back with you after the thing rolls out. And yeah, we'll get a chance. That'd be great. That'd be great. I mean, I also yeah. hope, of course, that that um, I not only inspire people to, um, you know, we're, we're, we've got a box of new toys. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm really interested to see what, you know, all the great designers out there are going to do, not only in the Korean War, but in using these rules and, and, and components in, in other than Korean War. And then I definitely want to see um, some other groups um, continue to expand ASL outside of World War II, the Spanish Civil War, um, the Arab-Israeli Wars, things like that. Oh, we'll see. All right. Well, thanks for your time. We'll go ahead and sign off. Thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. And uh, good luck in your future endeavors. And uh, maybe we'll see you at Oshkosh. Uh, thanks a lot. Well, I'm going to, you know, uh, hopefully I'm going to try to get to Winter Offensive this year. I don't know if you guys get there. But uh, if so, let's meet up. Okay. All right. Definitely. All right. Thanks well, a lot, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Take care. Oh, Jeff. Jeff. Are you ready to go to Mayhem in Manila? I sure am, Dave. I've got my bags packed, I've got my passport, and my hat. Do you have your OBA cards? No, I don't. How would I get some? Why, you'd have to go to Ritterkrieg and order some. Ritterkrieg? I don't know anything about it. Tell me. Well, this is the great online store 
of ASL equipment, ASL wooden gaming products like dice towers, custom-made tabletops, an ammo box map and map case, and all kinds of ASL products. You can order yours today and have it shipped to Mayhem in Manila. I, wow, I'm going to get all that stuff. I know what I'll do. I'll tell my wife I can't afford to take her, but I'll take all my Ritter stuff with me. But Jeff, you might be able to take her because a donor has donated our air flight (laughs) to Asia. Sweet. All right, then this is the best thing that could happen. I can take my wife, I can take all my Ritter Krieg equipment, and we're going to Mayhem Mayhem in in Manila. Manila. And these OBA cards aren't the crappy kind that we sold on our podcast. No. These are those really cool quality ASL OBA cards. It's a gigantic deck of cards that you can use for all of your OBA requirements. All of your OBA requirements. And you know what makes ordering from Ritter Krieg the best option for any pre-orders? Tell me. They have free shipping. (gasps) Impossible. Take that, MMP. Well, that's a beautiful thing. So, how do we get to... uh order this Ritter Krieg stuff. Well, you simply go to Ritterkrieg.com, R-I-T-T-E-R-K-R-I-E-G.com. I'm heading there right now. See you in Manila, Dave. See you in Manila.